This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario government is vowing to crack down on companies that break the new labour laws as they try to offset costs of a higher minimum wage. Uh, Let's hear from the Ontario Labour Minister, Kevin Flynn. Here's what he had to say. For the first time, the Minister of Labour now can, by law, publish the names of employers who break the rules. This is something we are very willing to do. The minimum wage, I don't believe, ever in history has been raised without the business community raising a fuss or concerns. For some businesses to take it out on their workers, however, is completely unacceptable, and it's simply wrong. All right, let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business uh, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Marvin, is it fair for uh, Minister Flynn to say that uh, employers are taking it out on employees when, you know, many associations would have uh, had said that, you know, if you raise operating costs on labor 30 percent, there's going to be ramifications, both in the form of a price increase and effect on the employees. Right. So let's break that into two chunks, if I can. Uh, There's going to be ramifications in terms of a price increase. And that's, you know, this is what we would teach in a business school when the cost of your inputs go up, whether it's labor, but it could be the cost of coffee beans or the cost of sugar or flour or whatever else you use to make stuff. When that goes up, you're going to have to pass those costs along to the consumer. Now, the good news is when it comes to labor, for most businesses, labor is actually a very small part of the cost. So, uh, you know, if you have a coffee shop, let's not talk about Tim Hortons specifically, but a coffee shop, probably you've got to raise coffee 10 cents a cup. Uh, And and so, yes, we're all going to pay a little bit more, but that's to make sure we don't have working poor. And the reason why that's not such a big deal is that all of your competitors are in the same boat, so you're all probably going to raise the cup of coffee 10 cents a cup. Therefore, it doesn't change the competitive dynamic out there. Now, that's that's on the side uh, of of raising prices. I'm not quite so sure that all those people said, well, there's going to be implications in the way we treat employees. I do not remember anybody saying, well, you raise the minimum wage, and I'll tell you what, those tips you give employees, I'm going to claim them now. They're mine. They're going to go into my bottom line. Whoa, whoa. No, but they, they did say that there would be, there could be uh, job loss, that there could be uh, a lesser number of people employed to do this. I mean, right. I, would, I would think that, 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 you know, keeping more people employed is better than trimming some of, of the benefits. No, right. I mean, either one of those isn't good whether it's not hiring, whether hiring only four of maybe seven employees in the past, uh, what's the difference between doing that or, or, or trimming the, you know, some of the benefits? Well, I, I'm, I'm trying to point out that there are some th- responses here that are off the table, and that's really what Minister Flynn is trying to say. Look, if you change the way you deploy your labor and you can use six less hours because of this, more power to you. In fact, my question is, why didn't you do it before? If you were that close to uh, failing to break even, then yeah, by all means, take a look at your costs. But we're not. No one's really complaining about that. We're not complaining about a worker, or excuse me, an employer who's changed the hours. What we're complaining about are. Uh, a, a coffee shop owner, and I think it was in Oshawa, who said those tips are now mine. Or, uh, yeah, you can take a break, and you have to stay in the store, but I'm not going to pay you for those 10 minutes you sit around. You know, it just doesn't work like that. And, and those people show you again why we need laws, we need labor laws mm. to, to try to even the playing field. Those, those are the sort of things that you see Scrooge do at Christmas time. This isn't what a good, decent business person does. Uh, do you think there are businesses that are uh, trying to ignore? what these rules are? Yes, and I think, uh, I think there's a couple of things going on here. So let me first deal with the Tim Hortons example, if I can, for a second. Layered into all of the stuff that you've been hearing is an ongoing dispute uh, between the franchisees and what is called the, the Great White North uh, Franchise Association. Ever since Restaurant Brands International took hold of Tim Hortons, there's been this, this dynamic between franchisees and the head office or franchisor, and they don't feel they're getting a fair shake. They think they pay uh, royalties to head office that royalty just puts into their bottom line. They don't do it for what they're supposed to do, which is promotional things. And in the case of this, when this price, uh, excuse me, when the wage increase was coming, apparently the franchisees went to Tim Horn's head office and said, please let us raise a cup of coffee, 10 cents a cup. And head office said, no, you're just going to have to absorb this. And so they've decided to protest that decision by head office in this very public way. So we've got a little of that going on here. Um, but I think there are other people that are just doing this to, to be uh, provocative, the way you would protest 
um, a, a decision by the government by holding picket signs or holding marches. You do something a little off the whack. You're trying to get a, a reporter to cover it so that you can complain about all of this. And what the minister has done, I don't think there's anything new, we already have a hotline that people can call in and complain about their labor circumstances. They get about 1,500 calls a month. At the moment, it's tracking towards 2,000 calls in this month. And he's also responding by saying he's going to have more people going out and inspecting the workplace and catching any violations of everything in C-148, not just the minimum wage. I think all of that is quite a prudent thing for him to do. Uh, we've you were saying that labor isn't a, a very large cost to businesses. I've had other experts come on that say that it's one of the biggest uh, expenses in in running a business. Well, yes and no. So it, it can be when I look at a single line item. There's a lot of money tied up in labor, but when I start breaking it out per product sold, it's not really very much. For instance, the average Tim Hortons sells between two hundred and three hundred cups of coffee per hour. If uh, the minimum wage went up 240 cents, so for every employee, if I raise the cup of coffee one cent, I cover the wage increase to those employees. If I've got 10 working, then 10 cents a cup is what I need to do. By the way, throw in another nickel on the donut, you've got everything covered, maybe even a little better profit than you had before. If I take a look at a restaurant, uh, the cost of wages in terms of preparing that food is roughly a third of the price of a menu item. If I then look at how much the minimum wage went up on that third, then I'd only have to increase my prices on the order of 5% to cover that. So there's a cost, absolutely, but this incremental change to the minimum wage, it doesn't require a 22% increase in prices to cover it. It's actually much less. So uh, why wouldn't Tim Hortons just raise prices then? Why, why does the head office not want to do this? <laughs> well, there's two, two aspects to this. So when you have a franchise, you tend to want to have the same prices coast to coast. And Ontario's wages have gone up, but Manitoba's didn't, Prince Edward Island's didn't, Quebec's didn't. So if they authorize 10 cents a cup, they really have to do it across the chain. Um, uh, at least that's their perceptions, that they have to do it across the chain. I'm not sure that's true, but I just think it's part of this funny dynamic between the two sides of this argument. I would note that Tim Hortons did raise coffee prices back in August, 10 cents a cup. I thought, in fact, they did it then to start creating a little war fund for people to cover the minimum wage increase. But obviously, whatever that was didn't get shared enough with the franchisees, and therefore the franchisees are complaining. I should also point out that this is affecting lots of different franchisees in different ways. What makes the Tim Hortons story so reprehensible is that the people who fired this off this is Tim Horton's uh, daughter and, and Ron Joyce's son, can't be reached for comment because they're at their vacation home in Florida. Clearly their business is not on the edge of bankruptcy, and this minimum wage thing is going to send them spiraling into red ink. And clearly these are two people who are likely going to inherit roughly $1.4 billion when Ron Joyce dies. They're the wrong people to put this out. But I guarantee you there are people listening to us who really are just barely breaking even with their small business, and this wage increase is causing them some hardship. I do sympathize with them, but I do say if when you, know, when you have these kind of lemons dealt to you, you've got to raise your prices a little bit. You'll cover it all off. And most people, again, on the other side, the consumers will understand. If you post a sign in your window and saying, you know, our cost at our bakery have gone up 10 cents a uh, whatever it happens to be, a loaf or a cookie or a muffin, and we're doing this to help pay a, a decent minimum wage to people so we can deal with some of these people who are working poor, I think most of us will understand. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, I just can't think that the uh, people that you were talking about who own the franchise uh, in Coburg are stupid enough not to realize what you just said, making me believe that's exactly why they did it. Uh, these people don't need the money. Uh, these people are clearly wealthy people. The franchise, uh, you know, would mean nothing to them if it was to be gone tomorrow. Uh, that being said, I've had many people saying that Tim Hortons is taking the heat for the others who can't afford to speak. Up. Thoughts on that? Well, maybe. Now, uh, let's, let's because just... again, at the end of the day, Tim Hortons is known for overpaying benefits to its employees for for minimum wage workers. From what I understand, it, it, in some fr franchises like this one in Coburg, where they're paying 100 percent of dental, for example, I mean that's a pretty good benefit. So, is sure is. is these guys not an easy target? And do you think they not know that? I mean, I think the reason they're doing that is to stand up for the others who can't afford, who don't have that financial backing. 
Well, uh, fair. Okay, uh, let me give you that. I'll give you that. Maybe they are. Maybe they can take the heat more than others. Although, if they are, where are they? Why aren't they taking the heat? They're avoiding the calls and they're not standing up and explaining their position. And I think that's really a show of cowardice. But flip side of this, there are lots of other franchisees out there. Have you heard about complaints from A and W? Uh, McDonald's, Harvey's, uh, Subway, Quiznos, so on and so forth. If, why are these franchisees of Tim Hortons in such a difficult spot? A franchise- I, I think because they're going, they're walking the plank. The other, I think the other people are way too scared. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't have any data on on people's fear factors out there. I think most of them are saying, okay, if this is the change in the rules, how do we respond to this in a, in a logical way? This is what we would teach you in a business school. When the cost of these inputs change, how do I deal with it? And I think other people are sucking it up and getting on with it and realizing that this, this was coming one way or another. It isn't news. You had more than a year to prepare for it. This has been told to you well in advance. You had lots of time to get ready. Compare this to, for instance, oil prices changing on the spur of the moment, suddenly shooting up or down, depending on what it is. I can understand where some people are caught flat-footed, but you knew this was all coming, and, and you should have taken the steps to be ready for it. What steps can Tim Hortons take if, in fact, they are not allowed to raise prices? Well, you're talking about the franchisees versus the franchisor, and I think someone's going to blink in this relationship because there's too much bad publicity for Tim Hortons right now, and it's affecting the company coast to coast. You may or may not realize that today is Boycott Tim Hortons Day. Mm. So there's a a Tuesday, I forget what they're calling exactly, but I'm sure it rhymes, Tuesday, Toonie, whatever, don't pay, don't buy a Tim Hortons today. That's not what the company wants. And I think partly, again, why the franchisees chose this method is they're trying to back head office into a corner. One side or the other is going to blink because you just can't keep this going. Uh, you know, in a way, Tim Hortons is Canada's bake shop. Is, we think of it as iconically Canadian, but we don't think the way they're responding is iconically Canadian. Normally, Canadians are seen as generous and trying to help, trying to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And this attitude just can't continue on. So someone will blink. I wouldn't be surprised if it's head office that will allow the Ontario franchisees move so they may win, but they may lose in the long run by tarnishing the brand. Uh, where do you think this is going to lead in the sense of the brand? Do you think uh, it has, how, how, how much do you think it has harmed the brand to date? You know, for the moment, I think people see this as not a head office policy, but as certain franchisees, I would not be surprised that some people are walking into their local franchise, i.e. their non-Coburg franchise, and saying, how are you coping, and what are you doing, and, and these people here, are you paying them for their breaks, and what have you. They've taken an interest in the business that they've never taken again. Whenever this changes, though, we have very short memories, and, and the key to Tim Horton's success, at least to date, has been the convenience of their locations. Whatever you're planning to do, whether you're taking kids to a hockey game or you're going shopping, what have you, Tim Hortons is conveniently there, and that factor will win out in the long run. But for the lo- the longer this continues, and the more we hear some of these really, really odd stories, again, like the fellow, I think it's in Scarborough, who's grabbing onto the employees' tips and saying, that's my money now, mm. You know, that that just doesn't play, and, and that, that that's just such a wrong-headed thing to do. Is it that he's taking the tip money, or is he just saying now no tipping? Well, that will be the end point of this, but he's saying if you tip, if you put money in the jar, that's going into the till, and then that's my money now, and I'll figure out what I'm going to do. I'm going to use that to help pay for your wage increase, and that's wrong. And that's, again, why Kevin Flynn has these kinds of, of tip lines, so that you can see this going on and do appropriate steps. Well, how do you think this is going to play out one year from now, Marvin? Well, let me, let me move it faster than that. How is it going to play out on June, I think it's 8th or 18th, whenever the provincial election is? Uh, you've got Andrea Horvath, for instance, right now, who's taken a very quiet tack on all this because she supports this move. Her only argument is that there are apparently some employees where uh, they're no longer being treated as employees but private contractors, and if it's a private contractor, these rules around minimum wage don't apply. She's trying to say, if I was in charge, I'd make sure that applied to them. But other than that, she's supportive of it, and she um, uh, does not support the business response. The conservatives, on the other hand, uh, they've been a little quiet on these protests. All they've said is, okay, we're at 14, but we're still going to go to 15. We're just going to take a little longer to implement it. I think it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out during the provincial election. And remember again the gamble. If these million people, and there are a million people affected by this minimum wage increase, if they truly do see more money in their pockets and more wages and a better standard of living for themselves, will they turn around and vote for the party that gave it to them, 
or will that not be enough? And that's the gamble that Kathleen Wynne is playing. Uh, it seems that when you talk to people regarding this who are advocating for it, and again, I don't know anybody that doesn't want to see an increase in minimum wage, uh, it seems to be either we're going to do it or we're not going to do it. And I don't think that's what the argument is. I think the argument here is the speed of implement- implementation, don't you think? I think there's a little bit of both. So the easy one to grab onto is it's too much too fast. That's the, For instance, that's the policy statement from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Gosh, we hear you. We've got to do something about the working poor, but you did too much too fast. I'll tell you why Kathleen did this, though. If she only increased the minimum wage 60 cents and said, I'm going to do it 60 cents a year for the next 10 years, just to throw out a number, uh, she would be afraid that if she lost the election, all this social change would end. So she wanted to make the biggest change while she was still in power to cement that, knowing that the next government, let's assume for a moment against a conservative government, they would be hard-pressed to roll it back. So if you really believe this was the right thing to do, she wanted to get it done while she had the power in the office. Um, You're right, most people are complaining about that. I do think, however, there are some people quietly muttering under their breath, saying, oh my God, 22%, that's not right, I'm not getting 22%. What they're missing in this argument is that the minimum wage was frozen for more than a decade. Five years under the Conservatives, five years under the Liberals. Under the Liberals, it was during much of that recession we saw in 2007 and eight. Well, that wasn't the right time to correct the minimum wage. Before that, it was under the Conservatives. They weren't keen on moving the minimum wage. And we really created an underclass. There are more people in Ontario working for a minimum wage than in any other province. The next highest is in Prince Edward Island. I don't think Ontario ever wants to compare itself to Prince Edward Island. Is that percentages or actual yes. numbers? Percentage. Oh, an actual number is obviously. Yeah, we're Prince Island only has a population yeah, of 200,000 people, but as a percentage of the total, we're 9% of the working people in Ontario work for minimum wage. Yeah. In Prince Edward Island, it's 8%. If you get to any other populous province like uh, uh, Quebec or Alberta, we're down into the 6.5% range. And they have the lowest minimum wage of anybody, though, Marvin. Like, Quebec's is sitting at 11 something. Yes, you know, ours was as of October. I think, again, they've got an election coming up this year in Quebec. I'm sure this is going to be an issue this race as part of that election. Do you think we're going to see small businesses close as a result of this? So I'm going to say yes, but I think some of them would have closed otherwise. In other words, yes, this will be the straw that broke the camel's back, but it was a pretty sick camel to begin with, and they've just got one more reason that they can't keep going. I was waiting for those stories. That's actually what I thought I'd see in January and February of this year, someone making a big announcement that, well, after 40 years of business, I'm going out because this minimum wage, it really is the one that's killing me. I did not expect, I really did not expect uh, small business people to take some of these, I'm going to call it silly and even you know sort of Dickensian moves to be really Scrooge-like during this time period. I did not think people would stoop that low, but it also shows you something about human nature. Uh, is it really that many more than just Tim Hortons? I mean, it seems to be Tim Hortons that's getting all the publicity here. Yeah, I, I, I think on balance. So I'd, I'd, it was too early for me to give you a number here, but I'm willing to bet that three-quarters, 80%, 90% of business people have done the right thing and said, okay, we're going to pay it, we'll see what it does, we're going to monitor it, and yes, we may have to change some hours of employment, but we're going to do our best to get through all of this and get to the other side, which I think is the right attitude to to take. I just wasn't expecting a small number of people to take this rather extreme position. And of course, because it is so extreme, it gets all the headlines. But I don't think this is what the vast majority of the business community is doing. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business, uh, business professor at Groot School of Business in McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. North Korea and South Korea are talking again. That's got to be good news. Uh, And, of course, uh, North Korea has decided to send a delegation to the Olympics in South Korea next month, and they'll also hold talks to ease military tensions between the regions. Uh, Here is an ABC reporter in Seoul describing what is going on. The reaction here in Seoul is full of optimism. The North showing very strong determination to make this work out, says they hope this opportunity could lead to a groundbreaking momentum towards peace on the Korean Peninsula. Christopher Kim is with us, Executive Director of Han Voice and is on the line with us now. Christopher, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. 
My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. How significant is this meeting? Uh, it's it's significant in the very short term, uh, in that, uh, as, as everyone knows, there had been a lot of pressure ratcheting up between uh, President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the leader in North Korea, uh, over 2017. 2017 was particularly eventful because North Korea had tested its ICBM uh, capacities, meaning that um, some experts believe that the uh, North Koreans can finally reach uh, North American mainland with a with a nuclear weapon, but also it had conducted two nuclear tests. So we are now kind of seeing uh, in its infancy North Korea become um, a nuclear state. So why is Kim Jong Un now offering this up? I think it's been in response to a bunch of things. Number one, he's playing chicken with a. Uh, president of the U.S. that has acted unlike many other presidents before him. Uh, president Trump is not afraid to play chicken and, and frankly, um, have a, a, a rhetoric war with Kim Jong-un. Um, most presidents in, in the past have been a little bit more uh, delicate in the approach. Uh, but the other thing is, in response to the ICBM testing, the ballistic missile testing, as well as the nuclear uh, weapons testings of 2017, We've seen increased uh, sanctions uh, imposed by the U.N., which has been signed off by North Koreans, uh, North Korea's allies, uh, China and Russia. And because of all of that, uh, the increased sanctions, the, the dangerous game of chicken, I think Kim Jong-un finally found that it was time to, to make a call and see if he could de-escalate tensions. North Korea is usually the ones ratcheting up that tension, but here we have North Korea trying to de-escalate. Do you think that is a result of the sanctions, and they're sort of using the Olympics as just, um, you know, a vehicle for all of this, perhaps, saving some face? I, I definitely think that the Winter Olympics is being used as a bit of a tool. See, North Korea over the past two decades has had a very predictable method of uh, negotiating um, concessions by the Western world. So first they test weapons, they make a lot of noise, um, sanctions are slapped on, they threaten war, and then finally when, the, when it's on the brink of uh, impending war, um, they say, okay, let's go back to the negotiating table and, you know, can you provide us with oil and different goods? Um, so it remains to be seen on whether this is the same strategy of old, just being implemented again in 2018. But certainly the one uh, different factor, there are two different factors here are, are this. One, you're dealing with Donald Trump, um, which is a wild card uh, in, in most countries' foreign policies. Uh, and number two, they finally have the nuclear weapon. So at this point, it is on the U.S. to decide whether it wants to recognize North Korea as a nuclear state, or whether they want to continue using these sanctions to get them back to the negotiating table, or third, and, and an option we haven't heard of much since the 90s, going, going to war with North Korea. Uh, how will Kim Jong-un sell this to North Koreans uh, when they are feeling the heat of these sanctions? So what he's already done in his New Year's address is to simply say that um, in order to achieve um, the country's goals, which are twofold, one, economic prosperity, but also nuclear ambition. He's basically saying that they have to sacrifice the economics portion at current in order to achieve the second, which is the nuclear. The whole strategy behind uh, the nuclear, uh, or, or, or uh, Kim Jong-un's strategy, which is Pyongyang, or economics and nukes, um, is to say, First, you establish power through the nukes, and then the economic uh, revitalization comes on the heels of that. So can he convince North Koreans, hey, if we just starve a little bit here uh, in the end because we have this power, it will pay off? So because um, when the U.N. Uh, Commission of Inquiry conducted a study on North Korea in the 2014, uh, they found that it, this is one of the last totalitarian states in existence today. Uh, Kim Jong-un controls everything in North Korea, from the military to the political party to the media. So everyone in North Korea is receiving a uh, half-truths through the state media. Uh, so in, in response to your question, Kim Jong-un won't have to do much convincing. He has a million people in the military and on others who have signed on as reserves, and he would simply make the orders, and North Koreans would, uh, would enter the war. 
how, how is this meaning the meeting between North and South Korea? How is this playing out at the White House? What are their feeling on it? What's their feelings on all of this? I think that uh, the White House um, would welcome uh, that there is another avenue for the country to de-escalate tension. I don't think anyone actually wants to go to war. I think it'd be reluctant if anyone was went to war. So if there any is there, if there's any way to get to option number one, which is to get North Korea back to the negotiating table, for North Korea to give up some of its nuclear weapons in uh, in exchange for economic concessions, that would be the best option for everyone. And so certainly, I think Washington would would uh, would welcome. South Korea and North Korea reestablishing its hotline. Normally, when you say Washington, that would include the president. Does it in this case? Does the president feel the same way? I believe so. And the reason why is because Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, um, has also been making overtures to North Korea in order to get them back to the negotiating table. So as much as we have uh, Donald Trump on Twitter making threats and um, engaging in... um, a pissing match with with Kim Jong Un. Um, we know that that other State Departments and and uh, ambassadors are trying to ease those tensions and iron out a way out. Uh, should Trump be engaging in this rhetoric, which other presidents have ignored? Is he moving the conversation forward? How, no matter how uncomfortable it is. Although Donald Trump would like to think that he is moving the needle forward. Uh, one thing I would. Uh, personally warn is that um, when you deal with a country that has traditionally been cut off from the rest of the world, uh, many statements can be misconstrued. And so the, the game of chicken is a dangerous one when you have a country that doesn't have all information and when there's not proper checks and balances to prevent um, skirmishes. Uh, so my own personal opinion um, is that these that communication tools such as Twitter need to be used very carefully, um, and that hopefully there is a more unified uh, approach so that nothing is misinterpreted. Is North Korea doing an end run around the U.S. by going directly to South Korea and holding these negotiations? Is it what does that do for the relationship between the United States and both of these uh, countries? I think what North Korea would simply be doing is, uh, again, trying to manage tension uh, while not losing face. Um, at this point, through Trump's rhetoric, uh, it would, it would, someone would lose face in coming back to the negotiating table. Uh, but in, in, in another scheme, perhaps North Korea is also looking for certain economic con- concessions from South Korea. Um, South Korea has provided aid to North Korea uh, for years. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, President Moon in South Korea has already stated that he would not be willing to negotiate much unless there was an actual discussion about security and denuclearization. Uh, what about the name-calling? Rocket Man, what have you. How is Kim Jong-un imp- interpreting this? Uh, <laughs> I, I suppose the best would be to ask him, although... Uh, probably wouldn't get a response, but uh, my my own feeling is, is that uh, trading barbs, um, that Kim Jong Un does a lot of this, um, not so much for the world at large to hear, but rather more so uh, for his own countrymen to hear, so that he can maintain power. So one of the things that you always have to think about with North Korea is that there are. Uh, messages are construed twofold. Uh, for most countries, when there's uh, official proclamation, et cetera, et cetera, that message, messaging is not only to the local people, but it's also to the world. Um, but for Kim Jong-un, his primary purpose is to consolidate his power, which could be slipping away within the country, and therefore a lot of this rhetoric he would use to show that there is an unstable uh, captain at the helm of the United States and to use that to bolster his support within the country. So is the fact that Trump is responding to Kim Jong-un, uh, is, that, is that a victory for Kim Jong-un in his, own, in his own country? I certainly think he would be using it to his advantage. Uh, whether it's a victory, it still remains to be seen, and it will ultimately depend on whether things are negotiated or where, whether things escalate to full-out war. What do you think is going to happen post-Olympics? 
I think we'll go right back to where we were with North Korea having to decide whether to continue testing its weapons, which I believe it it, it will. Um, And uh, meanwhile, China will have a tough decision on its hand on whether to actually implement these sanctions. So even though China has signed on to these sanctions in its capacity as a UN Security Council uh, member, um, ultimately, the sanctions haven't worked in the past because China has simply uh, been lax in its implementation. Uh, but this is this is the most we've seen China kind of irritated with with North Korea too. So it will remain to be seen whether that economic pressure really ratchets up. Uh, in some, when you have Kim Jong Un who's using uh, President Trump's words to galvanize support within the country. You also have the country's support slipping away if they feel the economic sanctions biting too hard. Hmm. So there's going to be a delicate balance even for Kim Jong-un in consolidating his power. How does this change the face of the Olympics specifically around security now that North Korea is involved? I mean, that must make South Korea breathe at least a sigh of relief here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and, And to... Um, kind of continue the security on the peninsula around the time of the the, the Winter Olympics. South Korea, North uh, South Korea, and the United States have also agreed to postpone its military drills. There are annual military drills, usually in February to April, um, where the U.S. and South Korean forces mock a um, essentially a blitzkrieg onto the peninsula. Uh, that is being postponed as well. So I think um, everyone should feel a little bit safer in attending the Winter Olympics. Uh, many question why Kim Jong-un didn't launch a missile when Trump was in the region just to flex his muscles a little bit. So you, know, you don't think that's going to happen during the Olympics? No, I don't. I think that for, for North Korea to begin a war would spell um, death for Everyone. What about just the test of a missile during the Olympics? Uh, the test of the, the missile could happen, but I, I think it would be counterproductive to what North Korea wants at this point. What North Korea wants is to continue testing its missiles um, without uh, the U.S. getting involved and in, in threatening security, and it also wants an abatement of the sanctions and economic concessions. So right now, North Korea wants to continue following its two-pronged Pyongyang uh, policy, which is nuclear weapons followed by economic um, proliferation. Uh, When we talk about this, uh, it seems we're talking so much about the rhetoric, we forget about the human cost. Uh, What about uh, family reunification? I mean, we've certainly heard the tragic stories of of Korean families that have been separated. Any chatter of uh, reunification in any way? There has been um, some talk about having families uh, unify and meet each other during the Olympic, uh, the Olympic celebration. Um, however, North Korea, to my knowledge, has not yet responded to this. Um, but it, it would be a great opportunity. As, as most people would know, North Korea and South Korea were, uh, came into existence when the Soviet Union and the U.S. split Korea down the 38th parallel. And, and in doing so, there were many families hundreds of thousands of people that uh, languish on each side, never really uh, making contact again. What picture of South Korea do North Koreans have? I mean, you know, obviously this is a regime that keeps, uh, that keeps them under a blanket, so to speak. Do they have any idea what's going on in the South? Uh, yes. So before, uh, when the North Korean government controlled very tightly the state media apparatus, and they still do, um, North Koreans had a very skewed idea of what South Korea was. It was a puppet state slave to the Americans, and it was very poor. But ever since uh, the rise of digital technologies uh, globally, but also in North Korea, North Koreans have become avid fans of South Korean dramas. And now, having seen these dramas, they know and accept begrudgingly that South Korea is actually the wealthier country. So uh, the average North Korean has much more information um, at their fingertips today by virtue of these digital technologies. How does Kim Jong-un keep a handle on that if he's, if, you know, there's, there's inkling within North Korea that South Koreans have it better? Well, what he attempts to do is to continually frame South Korea as a puppet of, of, of the United States. Um, and, the, and what he tries to show uh, very... Um, often is the re-defection of defectors in North Korea. 
from South Korea to North Korea. So in other words, sometimes we've had a few stories where North Korean defectors left and became refugees in South Korea, and then they have since gone back to North Korea. Those sorts of stories are played over and over and again, basically to show how corrupt uh, South Korea is and how much of a dystopia it is. Um, It it only manages to work because uh, Kim Jong-un has uh, clamp on the rest of the country. They're not even allowed to move into different provinces um, because their rights are severely restricted. But that's the narrative that he has created so far. Christopher Kim has been with us, executive director of Han Voice, North Korea and South Korea, holding, uh, holding talks today. And uh, North Korea will send a, delega- a delegation to the Winter Olympics in South Korea. Christopher, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. On the issue of, of increase in minimum wage and... I guess, lack of equal pay for equal work for women, a London, Ontario pub has been receiving support and backlash over its 13% discount as a nod to the wage gender gap. This has prompted a possible human rights complaint. So there's this pub in London, Ontario, and uh, basically they wanted to change it up on Monday nights. Uh, So the owner, uh, aware of that Stats Canada has reported that for every dollar a man earns, a woman earns 87 cents, have decided to capitalize on this and have started a promotion they call Mind the Gap, which basically they give women a 13% discount uh, on Mondays in order to to compensate for this uh, difference in, in wages as reported by Stats Canada. So uh, it hasn't started. I understand it's supposed to start today, uh, or, or sorry, this week, rather. Um, but in the end, uh, what they thought was a clever and, and socially conscious move has ended up backfiring on them because uh, a complainant vowed to lodge a formal gender discrimination complaint with the Ontario Human Rights Commission if he didn't uh, stop doing this. So it seems kind of odd that uh, he's doing this to, uh, I guess, try to find a solution to inequality and gets charged with being not equal. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Howard Levitt is with us, employment lawyer, and he is on the line with us now. Howard, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Can we talk about men's human rights when it appears that they have more than women do? I mean, where do you draw the line here? Is there a case? Well, I think when I was, I remember well, when I was a young man in Hamilton, um, women got much better treatment than this. They didn't get pay 87 cents in the dollar. They got into for free. Men had to pay to get into bars and women got in for free. That's much, that's a much better deal for women. They seem to be making it much more expensive for women at this London pub. But seriously, it, it technically would breach the Human Rights Code because it's discrimination in services, but it's sort of a silly case to bring, isn't it? Uh, can you bring a case like this when Stats Canada says that, uh, you know, women are earning 87 cents for every man's dollar? Uh, does he have a point here? Does this owner, does he have a point? Well, not really. Some women make more, some women make less. Does everybody get to pay admission to a pub based on their particular income? They have to show their financial statements before they enter the pub, and that determines how much they pay. That isn't really how it works. But it's a nice marketing gimmick on his part. We'll get lots of women into his pub, and lots of men will come because the women are there, so it's a great branding exercise. But the complaint to Human Rights Commission's a bit ludicrous. Are ladies it really night- trivializes the issue. Uh, are ladies' nights uh, still legal in Ontario? Can you still do that? Technically not for that reason, but it doesn't mean... But nobody's going to bring such a silly complaint as to complain about it. So, like so many things, they're technically illegal, but if a bar wants to do it, no one is going to stop them, hmm. let alone the Human Rights Tribunal. Your thought on this man complaining, where does this come from, do you think? I think he just wants to make a point. Um, a political point, and that's where it comes from. It's a, it's, it tri- the whole complaint trivializes human rights. It's done in some degree of fun. It's done to promote brand awareness to his pub, and 
so what if they charge women 87 cents on every dollar they charge men in this particular case no one really cares it becomes a, a real societal issue that maybe the human rights tribunal should step in but at this point it just trivializes the process uh, human rights uh, people have said that they have not received this complaint as of yet or it is in the system and it, it hasn't made its way through. How do you think they'll react to this? They'll be unhappy to have to deal with it because it isn't what they should be spending their time on and our taxpayer dollars dealing with. Would they theoretically, though, have to rule against this night? Because, as you mentioned... They would. Yeah. They, they will, eventually, they will order this pub to stop doing this or or more interesting would be to force them to pay um, uh, people complaints can say, I want compensation for every time I attended for the extra 13 cents of a dollar that I had to pay. But that will be pretty insignificant. I, mean, I guess there could even be a class action. But again, it's, it's ludicrous. And, it, and the dollar amount is so insignificant, no lawyer would want to take it. Uh, th- that was my next question. Does anybody want to touch this? Would anybody or, or, or would this person just be laughed out of Dodge? I think, well, they'll be laughed out of Dodge as they win their case, but yeah. it'll be a titular victory of no real significance. How does the movement respond to this? I mean, you know, we've certainly seen what's happened of late, uh, especially in around Hollywood and such, with uh, uh, allegations of, of sexual assault and such and, and women's rights. H- how does this affect the movement? I mean... Well, look, Soul Pepper, the, the actresses of Soul Pepper are represented by my law firm. And they've really seemed to have hit a major public chord in terms of their allegations against George Schultz, their former director. There's a real visceral response of the public against um, people who take advantage of women sexually in the workplace. So I thought maybe a couple months ago, after there were so many allegations coming out of the Me Too movement, that the news cycle is short and people move on to the next big news story and this will be forgotten. And a bit of an historic footnote, perhaps, maybe attitudes will change somewhat, but then life will move on, but not at all. There is massive interest in this, so I don't think public attention has cha- is at all diminishing on this issue. How do you think the public will react to this situation with this pub, this guy trying to do something and then having the door closed on him? Well, I don't think the door will be closed on him. He, he, he has a successful case. Mm-hmm. I think people will just say he's being silly and shouldn't waste his energy on something so trivial. Even people believe that, even people who fundamentally agree with his position that there should not be employment equity or affirmative action will think this is too trivial a cause to take on a pub letting women pay 87 cents of a dollar. Howard, getting back to uh, what we've seen in the United States, in Hollywood, and in Washington, uh, we've talked a lot about it, uh, a lot about this of late, for obvious reasons. Uh, we don't seem to hear as much in the private industry. We're certainly hearing a lot about it, a lot about of it in the uh, entertainment industry and in politics and such. Uh, why not more so? in the private sector, or is it simply because it just doesn't have the, the, the titillation, salation of all these other stories? Well, I think because it's not going on to the same extent, because, and people will say, that can't be. But the answer is, it's not going on to the same extent, because in private industry, they've had policies against it for a very, very long time. And employees have been, executives have been terminated quickly for this kind of predatory conduct for a very long time. So therefore... Um, men are less likely to behave that way in private companies because they've known for a long time they'd be fired if they did that. There's been sexual harassment policies in place for a very long time in Canadian companies, especially larger companies. That's why you're not hearing about it. Do you think that HR departments are re-examining all of these policies in wake of what's happening? Or as you mentioned, that's already in place. Well, it's already in place, but, but they are definitely dusting them off and making sure everyone signs statements acknowledging their adherence to those policies. So, because they realize that women who might not have made complaints are going to make complaints now in a way they hadn't before, but there isn't the same there isn't the same sense of entitlement in my experience in especially larger Canadian corporations that there is in the industries we're talk, we're hearing about. And by the way, you talk about the entertainment industry, the media industry, you're not hearing about it at global television or city TV or CBC or to the same extent. Maybe CBC a little more, but not the others because they're run as Rogers' own city, uh, 
Shaw owns Global. Mm-hmm. They run like big companies, and they have strong sexual harassment policies in place. Interesting. Howard Levitt, long time. Howard Levitt has been with his employment lawyer. Uh, Howard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Okay, my pleasure. Anytime. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's bring in Mark Sari. He is the owner of Morrissey Pub. That's where all of this is happening uh, in London, Ontario. He is with us now. Mark, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Great. Thanks for having me. Hey, how's this been working out for you? Pretty good publicity coming out of all of this, despite <laughs> the headache it may have caused. It's been a small headache. Like, I haven't actually been able to work. For the last two days, I've been answering phone calls and tweets and Facebook messages. But uh, again, the conversation has been wonderful. So, uh, has this promotion started? Have you already implemented this plan? Uh, yesterday was the first day we did it. And what um, was the response yesterday? I think it was great. We were we were full for dinner. We had a we had an okay lunch, considering I think we got about two feet of snow on Sunday. So, mm. uh, you know, no school on on Monday again. Everything was canceled, and the city was a little bit uh, uh, moving slower than usual. But um, we did really well yesterday, I thought. So what has been the public response to what you've done with this uh, promotion, Mind the Gap? Uh, you know what? Very, very positive, I think. And uh, I thought there would be a bigger backlash online um, than what I've seen thus far. Uh, but it's it's been really good, especially in-house and in our own social media. A lot of kudos. Um, except for, of course, the one complaint that we received about three hours after we posted uh, our new promotion. And... Uh, so when he, or a gentleman kind of said that he might be going to the Ontario Human Rights Commission, I think that's kind of what's kind of kicked off this whole conversation. Now, did he did he do that? Did he actually file a complaint? Do we know? We don't know as yet. Um, we did uh, we did check yesterday, but uh, there because it was just Monday after the holidays and all the rest of it, they they said it takes some time uh, before it would even be uh, uh, processed. So I don't think we'll know for a week or two anyway. What was the reaction to your customers or the public when they realized you, you were uh, ticking some people off with this? Uh, like I said, the customer has been great. Um, uh, we, had, we had a lot of discussions about it last night. We've had several about it today, too, uh, with both men and women. Um, it seems, like I said, it seems to be the conversation that everybody wants to talk about it, that's for sure. Um, uh, but like I said, last night was great. A lot of, a lot of women uh, were very appreciative of it. Uh, I had one email this morning from a woman who um, thought that we were taking pity on women, and she didn't want our pity. Hmm. And uh, uh, and I wrote back, and I'm like, it's not pity; you've got an ally. Um, you know, it's it's about the conversation. And uh, between us, we came up with a great idea because we've tied in a charitable aspect to this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said, if you don't want the discount, I'll tell you what: you just tell us you don't want it, and we'll take that 13% and add it to our charitable charitable donation. That's a great idea. What was the yeah. reaction to that? She loved it. There and you go. said she's going to take advantage of it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a win-win for everybody. So getting back to the complaint, how did this start? How did you first find out about it? You said you found out about it three hours after you decided to do this or it went up on your website. What, what, yeah, he popped me an email. Yeah. Um, and in the email, he said, you know, the first step in any any human rights complaint is to try to, uh, try to, to satisfy it uh, with uh, who he had the problem with. So that was me. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, you know, if you cease this promotion, uh, then I won't go to the Ontario Human Rights Commission. That's hardly and... a discussion, though, is it? It's either you do it my way or I file a complaint. That's not <laughs> a discussion. Sure. That, you know, that's the sort of BS we live with in this world. It's not about, uh, you know, agreeing to disagree. It's like, no, you do no. it my way or you're out. Or a compromise or anything yeah, like that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so when he, you know, he, he said he understood what we were trying to do. Um and he just thought we were going about it the wrong way, that you can't fight discrimination with another form of discrimination. Uh, and so I wrote him back, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've got this issue. I'm glad that you've got the opportunity to be able to find um, uh, uh, the wherewithal to go to the Human Rights Commission. Um, but we're still going to run the promotion. And I asked him if he could just wait till Tuesday uh, so that we could actually run the promotion once before he actually filed a, a complaint. Yeah, interesting. So, have you heard from him again? Have you? No. It's just email, right? You haven't really physically talked to him, have you? No, it was just the one email. Um, I haven't tried to track him down on Facebook or anything like that, or tried to follow up now that he's seen uh, the public re- reaction. Uh, because we did have um, pretty much an hour after that when I I, I posted a tweet about um, how we had a complaint, and we had a couple of uh, uh, local Londoners, uh, one lawyer, uh, one business person. 
um, let us know about the case that had already been put forth be, be, before the commission um, with a bar concerning the Barking Frog, a, a local bar, mm -hmm. about their ladies' night promotion and uh, and how that got dismissed fairly out of, easily out of hand. Uh, do you think after seeing the reaction, this is just going to go away? They'll never even get to the human rights? Uh, I think so. I hope so. Um, but again, if it does, it, it prolongs the conversation. So that's not necessarily a bad thing either. So this all originated just from this idea and then it being posted on social media and it took off from there. It took off from there. And ironically, it was the complaint that made it take off. Yeah. You know, like, uh, <laughs> yeah. So kudos to him. <laughs> so uh, um, have you heard from other bar owners on this or other restaurateurs? Have they said anything? No, no, I have not heard from any uh, fellow restaurateurs as yet. Um, heard from family, I've <laughs> heard from friends, uh, and certainly enough, uh, enough of our local clientele um, that have sent us messages. Do you think this will revive Ladies' Night? Do you think this will revive such promo uh, promotions? Because, again, uh, for a while, you know, it seemed that we, we couldn't do this stuff anymore. Uh, I don't know that they've ever gone away. I think mainly it's those clubs that do the Ladies' Night that... You know, they want the ladies in there to, to, that they think that that's going to attract the men. Right. And that it's easy for them to drop a $20 cover charge. Um, you know, we don't have the same uh, liquor laws as they do in the States where ladies' night might be, you know, free drinks for ladies all night. Mm -hmm. um, so a little, bit, a little bit harder to find incentives for women to come out. But, um, you, you know, there, there are places that do special things like Valentine's Day uh, for, for, for the ladies. Um, uh, you know, like free desserts or, or whatever it is. And, and basically, this is just a, a, another way framed differently. Yeah. It's still basically a ladies' night. Yeah, yeah. So what are the laws? What can't you do? Uh, Liquor-wise? Yeah. Uh, Liquor-wise, we, we can't, um, you know, if we have one offered, it has to be offered to everybody. Right. Uh, so we can't say, you know, like, for example, in September we do redhead days. Right. So all redheads. Um, get discount on food, uh, um, and I'm a redhead myself, so you know it's, it was kind of a different kind of bias at the oh, time. Oh man, that's great! Um, so you know we we couldn't say, and all redheads get amber beer for free. Really? Uh, we cannot do that. No, but we can say on that day because of redheads, everybody gets three dollar pints or whatever the case may be. Right. right. Um, so yeah, uh, legally we we can't offer a specific group a different price. All right, tell everybody where Morrissey's Pub is. Uh, what we are? Where where you are. Where yeah. we are. We're in London, Ontario, right downtown on Dundas Street. Right oh. in the middle of all the hotels. All right, Mark Sari has been with us, owner of Morrissey Pub. He decides he wants to have a Mind the Gap promotion and offer ladies a 13% discount uh, because that is the wage cap, according to Stats Canada. And uh, next thing he knows, he's... <laughs> He's got the threat of a human rights violation put against him. Uh, Mark, good for you. Great promotion. You. Uh, clearly, it's worked for you. You've uh, got yourself on the map again. And, and not only that, you, you're talking about a very social conscious issue. So exactly. good for you. Mark, th important part. thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.